Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 103, and we're recording on Thursday, April 23rd. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from brookriot.com. Our pre-show was all about donuts today. Which, it's kind of surprising that it's not all about donuts yeah. more often. Rebecca made the mistake of sending me a list of the best donut shops in America, so we got we were delayed because, you know, you got you to take that seriously. You Obviously, can't just gloss over that. I mean, we can't eat donuts together because we're separated by several states. No, this is what the internet is for. The next best thing is just to talk to each other about donuts. Uh, One of these days, we're going to remember to record our (laughs) pre-show, and we'll just save it for like the clip show of uh, Jeff Becker randomness. When you were saying episode 103, I felt for a minute like hot 103, the morning with (laughs) Jeff and Rebecca. (laughs) Every every station in America had hot 103.3. It was always hot, you know? I don't know and why it, that was that was a thing. Uh, if, well, you like a, if you have a donut store out there that you like uh, out there in podcast land, please email us. We need yes. to know. Just because, you know, you, you might find yourself in Dubuque, Iowa or Salt Lake City with an hour to kill. And I'd like to be able to pull up the best donut place. And really any place I am at any given moment, I need to know where the best donut when, is. You know, we, we like to be a full service establishment. So yes. we'll help you find the best bookstore in the places that you're traveling. But we would like to point you to great donut places yes. as well. Let's crowdsource them. We've also decided that our hypothetical someday, maybe probably never book riot bookstore will have donuts in the morning. That, mm-hmm. That's what that's a little thing. It'll be hot, fresh donuts in the morning. And then hot, fresh donuts after dark. Yeah, and we'll have donuts all the time to, to get people in the door. You can have coffee and donuts. You can have bourbon and donuts. That's what I'm savory donuts. Oh, the, donuts with pulled pork. Yes, and wines. Yes. Now we're talking. All right. Before we get off too much in a flight of We fancy. have just rebuilt our wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the fort of things we're interested in. Um, <laughs> all right. Also, if you want to email us, we've got uh, next week we're going to do our mom's, dad's, grad's summer recommendation show. This is our summer version of our, you know, our holiday recommendation show. But we're sort of rolling all of these things that happen around uh, early May to June. So if you've got, uh, if you like a recommendation for for a mother, a matriarchal unit for for Mother's Day, or a patriarchal unit for Father's Day, or someone's graduating at any level, or a summer recommendation for you or someone else, or you want a book, rec- basically, if you want a book recommendation for you or someone else. Send us an email, whatever. But, you know, this is why we're doing it now. It's a time where people are giving a lot of gifts to a bunch of different kinds of people in their lives, um, and we enjoy doing the show. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com, or if you'd like to leave a comment in the show notes to this episode, go to podcast.com slash, excuse me, bookriot, (laughs) I keep doing that, bookriot.com slash podcast. You'll find the show notes to this and all previous shows, but... Leave the comment on episode 103 or 102, those we've been asking on and those. If, uh, if you're 
shopping for someone who also happens to listen to this show or that you're afraid they oh, might yes. somehow come across it, just let us know and then we won't say your name or yeah. give any identifying details about that person. Your GPS coordinates, your social security numbers, all that stuff we'll, we'll keep out of the show for sure. We should dig up the links to the last couple ones too because these are the kinds of book recommendations mm. that like are kind of perennially yeah. applicable. You know, my dad's into XYZ and like presumably someone else's dad is into the same X's, Y's and Z's. I think I think we may have to at the at the top of the show we might have to give some blanket recommendations so we just don't keep coming back to tiny beautiful things and uh, <laughs> Gilead and you know like, like those are sort just, of our standing recommendations. I mean, go buy your mom when women were birds. Yeah, <laughs> like maybe they should be like emergency. I have thirty minutes till I'm going to see my mom and I'm yeah. in a bookstore. Swiss what Army. Should I yeah, Swiss Army. Swiss Army recommendations for mom. Um, all right, let's do our first sponsor. Audible is back. Audible is the number one retailer of audiobooks with audiobooks in virtually every genre that you could reasonably think of as a real legit genre from nonfiction, fiction. You know, you know what genres are. I don't have to explain it to you. <laughs> There are over 180,000. They just keep upping the titles. When we first started doing mm-hmm. Audible spots, it was like about 100,000. Then it was 120. 100. This is how adding more numbers work, I guess. I'm now just counting. Uh, so over 180,000 titles now to choose from. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your book. So if you unsubscribe or you stop buying, you can still access your files. Free apps for iPhone, Android, Windows Phone. Download and listen on you know your, your Fire, your Kindle Fire, your Windows Phone, or over 500 mp3 players you can also listen on your computer i don't know if we've said that before but yeah i've done that before you have yeah mm-hmm. like if it's especially if you have something that's like bluetooth to a stereo or plugged into a stereo that's a nice way of you know um getting it in there if you don't want to plug your phone in necessarily right there um immersion reading on the kindle fire lets you listen and read at the same time so what we've talked about this a few times like if you want to listen and read Couple of things. If you're working on vocabulary, maybe a foreign language or something like that. Also, the reader's the reader's dilemma of uh, knowing a word but not knowing how to say it. That's something that might be able to helpful there. Though I have to admit, I've heard a lot of words mispronounced in audiobooks. Yes, this so is true. That's that you got to be careful about that. But it's better than nothing. Um, so go to audiblepodcast.com/slash/bookwrite for a free 30 day trial. That will give you a free audiobook of your choice. Um, and 30 days to try out the service. Let's know that you came from us to go to audiblepodcast.com slash book riot. They can keep doing the sponsorships. So audible.com, best place to try audiobooks. Let's see, I'm listening right now. I just moved over to um, uh, uh, the, the, the Think Like a Freak. The second oh, in the yeah. Freakonomics mm-hmm. guys. I listened to that last year. Oh, you did? Yeah. And mm-hmm. they, cause they have a new book coming out, too, called When to Rob a Bank. So I'm trying to get caught up because that's a good title. What are you going to say? That's a great title. Um, and I like I like what they're doing there very much. You said this one is kind of a – do you listen to the podcast you did for a while? The I have, like, off and on. Yeah. Um, when there's – I'm a selective Fairweather podcast ah. listener for, for that one, when the topic is something that I'm into. This one, my understanding is it's like fleshed out versions of some of the podcast episodes, but I don't listen to it. So it's all it's all new to me. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too. Some of the chapters are expanded versions of the topics, but then they also explode the like how to apply these ways of thinking. To yeah, your own, yeah. Your own it's kind of a structural work. thing. Like mm-hmm. here's some habits of mind, which uh, might be interesting for you, which is kind of what is catnip for me yep. uh, at this moment. What are you, what are you listening to? I am go? listening to As You Wish by Carrie Ellis. Hey. It's uh, his memoir and inside look at the not the making of the Princess Bride and also everything that's happened around the Princess Brides in the years, in the decades since the movie came out. It is 
such a delight. Mm. Uh, and he narrates it himself. So you get that lovely Carrie Elwes accent. It's a real pleasure to listen to. But there's just so much warmth and genuine emotion that he has for what a surprise it was that that movie became a the thing, thing yeah. that it is. Um, and that it continues to be this beloved thing now through a couple generations of American movie watchers. Um, he, he talks about in the very early parts of it, he talks about how like Mandy Patinkin can't go a day without someone on the street stopping him and, a- <laughs> and asking him to do I am an ego Montoya you killed my father prepared to die and how he does it every time um, and maybe how that's why he's of- growing that beard now so not as many people so. recognize him uh, and how uh you know, the, these actors, have, many of them have gone on to do many other things in their careers, but they're, they'll always be the most known for The Princess Bride and how that's totally fine with them because what a wonderful thing it was. So it's 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 great. Like, it's making me just want to watch The Princess Bride over and over and over and over. In hindsight, than- it's a super random cast. Like, <laughs> in, in like Wallace Shawn and Andre the mm-hmm. Giant and Fred Savage and Peter Falk. Like, it's uh-huh. so weird. Yeah. Anyway. And- Yeah, and he talks about, you know, kind of trying to assess why the movie worked and why it continues to work. You know, like it's not it's not really grounded in any particular time in pop culture. Like you can see the video game that Fred Savage is playing in the frame story and you can see like the posters on his bedroom wall. But the actual story itself is a period piece. And, you know, they wear old costumes. It's not like they're not decked out in 80s fashion from the year that the movie was made. And so it just continues to feel timeless and wonderful. Yeah, there's like no special effects, really. And it's, so it's it doesn't so, like, date it very much. I mean, it's... And it's just so bonkers quotable. He he talks about, you know, all of the famous lines. There's like a, a section also early on where he just starts rattling off like the famous quotable lines from the movie and Mm -hmm. they're all things that like I know I say in regular conversation but I hadn't realized how many of them there are Uh, it's so wonderful if you have any you know affection in your heart for the princess bride I highly highly recommend as you wish Mandy Patinkin also a uh, a notable illustrious alumni of um, our alma mater the University of Kansas oh I didn't know that yeah it was there at the same time with my parents, actually. Anyway, that's so, so that's, cool. uh, odd facts from Jeff's life. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I was going to ask, maybe your mom was at his wedding, no, too. No, I know, right? Have we told that story on the show? I don't know. I don't think we have. So Rebecca we? and I, we didn't know each other when Rebecca got married, but after the fact, my mom is a pastor, it came to find out that my mother performed Rebecca's uh, marriage ceremony. <laughs> what a weird day that was. Yes. That was a weird day. That was one of those candid camera Truman show kind of things. It was. Like, what is this that's going it was, on here? Oh, it was during our first Kickstarter. I remember. Is that like, what it, how did how, it was? How did I it was, come out? We were doing a, a Kickstarter for the first Start Here book. Right. And I was Summer obsessing. Summer 2012, yeah. Yeah, I was obsessing over... Um, who had backed it, as one does when one is uh-huh, afraid that yes. one's Kickstarter is not going name. to succeed. Right. And I saw I saw your mom's name. And I was like, I know that name. And then I <laughs> sat for a second. And I was like, wait, maybe I just think I know that name because, you know, O'Neill and Jeff. And wait. So how many I- radical left-wing Lady O'Neills? <laughs> Can there be that (laughs) perform ceremonies in Kansas City? At that point, like I got married in early 2008, which was before I even had a blog. Mm -hmm. And this was, yeah, this was mid 2012 when this was happening. And so I had to Google the name to make sure and like pull up the things from my wedding. And I was like, no. So I remember emailing you and being like, is this your mom's name? (laughs) 
Yeah, that was a weird email. I was like, uh, yeah, are you trying to like get into my password? Like, you need my mom's name? You said yes, and so I sent you back one of my wedding pictures with I your mom. I was like, yeah, there she is, right there. My mom, Manny Patinkin in the background behind her. <laughs> Turns out. Marriage. <laughs> love, true love. Um, okay, speaking of audiobooks, which we were talking about like 900 minutes ago, uh, let's get on to the news. Um I guess this will be, in addition to being the biggest book of the year, probably the biggest audiobook of the year, Ghost yeah, of the Watchmen. Yeah, this is pretty sweet news. Uh, Reese Witherspoon will be doing the uh, audiobook for Ghost of the Watchmen. Um, Amazing. She seems to be a pretty good uh, book reader herself, I've noticed, over well, time. Well, yes. Yes, she's the one who was responsible for Wild yeah. becoming a movie. She just optioned... Luckiest Girl Alive. Yes. Um, and there's, she was... Weren't there rumors? Was she involved in the Gone Girl adaptation or there was yeah, talk about she it was early there, on? There, I think she was maybe bought the rights initially or her production company did or something like that. And then, Yeah, so she's a she's a reader. I think she's also optioned Girl on the Train, I heard. Something oh, else. yeah. Anything with Girl one. she's in mm-hmm. on these days. Uh, girl and on the Train. she's going to read Go Set a Watchman. I'm so looking. I think maybe this is how I'll read Go Set a Watchman. Yeah. Nice. She has a little draw, which will be mm-hmm. nice. I'm sure she'll shine it on a little bit. It comes yeah, to go. She's um, from Tennessee. Is that right? Do you remember? I think so. Something like that. Like it's a nice southern accent that's not too southern. Um, I wonder if she's angling for the part of uh, adult uh, oh, scout. Adult scout. And the, the inevitable cinematic adaptation of Ghost. I had not thought about that, but man, I want that now. Yeah, see, I'm a schemer. Basically, I'm mm-hmm. uh, I'm uh, <laughs> Jeremy Piven from Entourage. Oh, yeah. Is that it? Yeah, same height. I don't know, Jeff. Same height. Uh, that's mostly what has to do. Yeah, so that would be good. I mean, and that one good. you could get on Audible. You could, I mean, if you, you want to try yes. out, that oh. would be an interesting one to get. Yeah, I saw somebody on Twitter this morning saying as soon as this announcement just broke like an hour ago yeah. before we started recording and um, saying that he went and immediately requested it from his library and he was pleased to be the first person ah, on the waiting list for the audio book right from now. his library. By the time you're listening to this show, that opportunity will not be available to you <laughs> to I be the first so. on your library's waiting list for the audio. But uh, if you're going to do audiblepodcast.com slash book riot and get a free credit you could put this on your wish list and get it there's going to be review copies this summer do you think i really doubt it i think the likelihood of review copies of ghost set a watchman is right there with the likelihood of anybody getting an early copy of like the hair the next harry potter book but even like newspaper critics like Kakutani or Charles or any of the big the big folks you think they'll get an early one no i don't think so so what i'm getting at here is reese witherspoon might be like one of the very first people to read the book. That's not yeah, like she's an probably editor or something. Signing her life away in yeah. non-disclosure agreements. Um, uh, and do you totally know who I am? <laughs> Sorry, I can Do you know who I am? Sissy Spacek um, reads. I was going to mention that. Yeah, audiobook of To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's really wonderful. Um, and I, so I was kind of wondering if they were going to bring her back hmm. for it. But this seems really perfect. Reese Witherspoon will be a delight. Yeah, she'll be great. Um, I, don't th- I don't think she's narrated an audiobook before. I was trying to look around to see if she had mm. done one before. But uh, anyway, so that's coming out July. It's, it's fast. It's coming it up. It is. That's coming up so soon. Yeah. I remember when we first heard the news, it felt like it was a long time. But it's going to be July before, uh, before we know it. Because that's how time works. Like that things is, in, in the fact, future get closer. 
as uh, the days go forward. So, all right. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to be on his podcast for this kind of insightful stuff. I want to have book hour with Neil deGrasse Uh, Tyson. Yeah, he seems like an interesting guy to talk about. Oh, Pulitzers. I'm sorry. I was was, was looking ahead. This is something that we know a little bit more about Mm -hmm. than uh, than how time works. No, not really. Yeah. Okay. So it was what, two years ago that there was no Pulitzer for, for fiction? And... Because they just couldn't agree on it this year. Uh, well, first we should just read the the names. Yeah, so the Pulitzer Prizes were given out this week. Um, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr won for fiction. That also won the Goodreads Reader's Choice Award it this year. It sold a million and copies. Like it's, it's the book of everywhere. the year. Like it really is. Um, Between Riverside and Crazy by Stephen Adley uh, Gurgis. Gurgis. I'm not sure. One uh, uh, for drama. Encounters at the Heart of the World, A History of the Mandan People by Elizabeth A. Fenn, one for history. Uh, the Poop and the Poop. Poop. <laughs> the Pope. The Pope. The, there it is. <laughs> the Poop and the Pope. That's, that's the uh, best blooper we've had, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope. Yeah. I, I try so hard not to curse on yeah, this show that our bloopers stay relatively. <laughs> this is about as benign <laughs> as it gets. <laughs> the Pope and Mussolini, the secret history of Pius the 11th. 11. Yeah, I was going to say Roman, Roman numeral, numeral map too early. And the rise of fascism in Europe by David I. Kurtzer, one uh, for biography or autobiography. Digest by Gregory Pardlow won the Poetry Award. The Sixth Extinction, an Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert, won for general fiction, and Anthracite Fields by Julia Wolfe, won for music. Cool. Uh, I'm going to read so that couple... Sixth Extinction book. That one I'm going to read. What is that one about? I keep seeing it everywhere. It's about I... like how humanity has changed the globe, basically, like mm. all the ways that yeah, yeah. It, the, the ecosystem of the world has been altered by folks. You know, Count me in on that. Yeah. That sounds great. It's interesting. I'm, I'm in. Anyway. So a couple interesting things happened. Yeah. With this. Well, uh, wait, a couple. In, well, the, so what's the, the most fiction, interesting? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. so the fiction one is really interesting. The way the Pulitzer works is that there's a fiction jury and the jury usually is that the jury's a bunch of people and they come up with the three titles that they give to the board. And they're like book people. Like they change right, every okay. year, they're critics, yeah. authors. Wait, whatever. sorry, the jury is three people and the board is bigger. Yes. The jury so, select okay, go sorry, you got it. Now. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the jury of three people selects usually the the short list of three novels mm-hmm. that they give to the board. And the board reads those three novels for consideration and chooses one of the three to be the winner. Which is so, how it happens in all the categories, apparently. Yeah. Like the board is the Pulitzer board, which is people from all kinds of they're not book people necessarily. Mm-hmm. So the small group of book people selects a few, give it to the wider pool of, of the board itself. Okay. I want to read like a, a total inside baseball history of how this yes. got worked out this way and why, like what the thinking is that this is the way that these awards are laid out. But mm-hmm. this year, so t- a couple years ago when there was no award, it was that the three-person jury had given the board the three books and the board didn't like any of the three books and they just didn't select a prize winner. This year, apparently, the three-person jury did select three books. They selected Let Me Be Frank With You by Richard Ford, The Moore's Account by Leila Lalami, and Lovely Dark Deep by Joyce Carol Oates. The board didn't like any of those three. (laughs) Send us another. And rather than an un-Pulitzer, they asked for a fourth book for consideration. Uh So the Pulitzer board then gave them All the Light We Cannot See. Super weird. 
And they selected that one. It feels weird to me that we know this. Like, I'm glad that it's transparent, but it's weird that we know this. And if you're Anthony Doerr, do you love knowing that, like, you won, but not because you were originally in consideration? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Like, first of all, I mean, there's a lot of weird parts. First, the original finalist pool is a weird pool. Right? Yeah, like, it is. It's like Oates and Lilami and um, Ford. And none of those, I'm sure that those are great books, yeah, but none of I those no are books that, that like, if you asked me at the end oh of 2014, God, no. what are the three novels that you think are going to be finalists for the Pulitzer, I would have said Station Eleven. Uh, maybe All the Light You Cannot Maybe, maybe All, all the, the Light You Cannot yeah. See. Um, a lot of people love that book. Maybe Redeployment by Phil Clay, yeah, which won the National right. Book Award. Yeah, you've got Marilyn Robinson. Right. I mean, you've got a lot of choices here. So um, I, I, I want to know how they ended up with these three. Yeah, I'm not questioning that those are the three. I'm just surprised. I mean, who yeah, knows? Like, and, I don't get bent out of shape about well, that Well, in the year that the, – in 2012 when there was no winner – it was the a good three... list. It was Dennis Johnson, Karen Russell, and David Foster Wallace. I'm looking at it right now. Right, right. Yeah. Which but those also, books people were talking like those. That yeah, was those like a very books. familiar looking list. It was – this is uh, – right. So the three – the original three is kind of a surprising, weird selection. No. And then All the Light We Cannot See felt very like, okay, you couldn't agree on a book. We'll give you the book that everyone liked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and w- I mean, I wonder if the board was like, whatever they're going to they give us, that's going to get the award? Or are they still like, if they don't like that one, are we going to ask for another one? Like, right. how long are we going to do this? We'll, or like, was there a secret plan? Like, we'll ask for up to six. And if we don't like any of the six, then we'll just decide that nothing was worth the Pulitzer that so year. It's strange. It's so, it's, it's so weird. Mm-hmm. This is so strange to me. <laughs> like, really, a group of three people are the ones that are responsible for the Pulitzer Prize. Like, they they select the finalists. Yeah. And then the board chooses from those three. But they can typically only choose from what's made available to them in, as finalists. Well, so, historically, the Pulitzer has been the most, I don't know, mainstream of the yeah. literary prizes. Like you look at the last few years, it, the, all that we can have. So you can't get much more mainstream than that. The mm-hmm. Goldfinch, the most mainstream literary fiction book probably of you know yes, the last decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a Visit from the Goon Squad. Tinkers was a surprise, 2010. Mm-hmm. Olive Kittredge, Brief Wondrous Life, The Road, March, Gilead, The Known World, Middlesex. Like these are all books, you know, that we think are good, but also like people who are more casually interested in contemporary fiction also would like. Yeah, I'm not I saying there's a slam or good or bad. All. That's just the, the nature of the, the Like the, the Pulitzer is a pretty good way if you were if you were running a book club once a month yeah. and most of the people in your book club only re- – like that one book they read for your book club was the one book that they read in a month. Mm-hmm. You could do a really so- – you could have really excellent selections if you went off the Pulitzer. Um, when I started reading adult books – That's what like, I was going to say, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, just looking at the Pulitzer winners' tables in Barnes & Noble and Borders um, or having that sticker – Yep. On them, I sort of figured out that these were award-winning books that I would like and that would be accessible to me in ways that, you know, like the National Book Awards finalist list or the booker weren't always things that I was interested in um, at those points in my I'm just looking at the list now. Like about when I start, turned 13, I started reading contemporary fiction in a semi-serious way. Mm. Mambo, P- Mongo, Mambo King's Play Songs of Love by Oscar Huelos was 1990. I remember reading that one. The okay. last John Updike rabbit book. I read all the rabbit books in 91. I think I skipped A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley in 92. I don't know why exactly. Hmm. Um, I read The Shipping News in 94, The yep. Stone Diaries in 95. Independence. Oh, the Stone Diaries. So good. The Independence Day, Richard Ford in 96. 
96, Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser, 97. I mean, like I read all the, the hours in 99, like, mm-hmm. and I love those books. Those are great. You know, they're great books, but they're kind of of a, of a piece. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is they're not, you wouldn't call them edgy on the whole. Some of them are edgier than others. Yeah, but, you don't usually get like experimental literary fiction yeah, in the Pulitzer. Right. Like you're going to get good stuff that's well crafted and interesting and beautiful and thoughtful. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely of a, of a certain kind. And I would do I would be very happy myself to read just that sort of piece my, the rest of my life. So I'm not trying to slam. But I can see how if the, the, the jury was like, they didn't want those books. All right, fine. Let's give them a Pulitzer book. And that's all the light we cannot see. It mm-hmm. definitely sort of fits the the, the typical Pulitzer book. Um, is there anything else to say about this, the Pulitzers? Oh, so the thing that I think is interesting uh, that happened in poetry oh, right, is yeah. that, well, so this was a, the poetry winner this year, Digest by Gregory Pardlow. It's from Four Way Books, which is a small press. Um, so I'd seen many people sort of crossing their fingers that a small or independent press would win a Pulitzer. Um, it's a huge thing for sales yeah. or huge-ish for sales each year. And maybe in the next couple of weeks, we'll start to get some of those reports about like how many additional copies of All the Light We Cannot See mm-hmm. were sold because it won. Uh, but this is undoubtedly a great thing for any writer and a especially a poet, especially from a small press. Um, this I haven't read Digest. By all accounts, it's really wonderful. I was surprised, though, and it looked like most of literary Twitter was surprised that Citizen by Claudia Rankine wasn't even a finalist, mm-hmm. which um, in terms of beautiful poetry, but also timeliness and cultural significance. It's hard for me to, like, granted, That's I did not read. That's not what the Pulitzer read. does. I mean, I know. I, know. I, mean, I, you, I, I didn't. I didn't read a million poetry last year. I was going to say that's the other year. thing that a lot of people have read Citizen. And it's, right. uh, I haven't read it, though I do want to. It was like sold out. Like it sold, it was sold 50, out 50,000 copies, time. which for poetry is a huge seller. I ordered my copy from, um, from my local indie and it took forever for them no. to get the reprint. Grey Wolf, um, From right? Grey Wolf yeah. Press did it. It was a National Book Award finalist as well, but the poetry collection is about the present and increasing uh, racial tension in the United States. And it ties into police brutality and into the young black men that have been killed recently. And there's been a lot of discussion about possible updated editions with new names, because unfortunately, there are many new names Mm -hmm. to be added. Um, I know that what the Pulitzer does is not, you know, look at what's timely and culturally significant, but it's not just timely and culturally significant. It's also a really incredible book. And it was just surprising to me that it didn't make the finals. And people were wondering like, oh, well, she's from Jamaica. Um, her editor confirmed to one of our writers on Twitter that uh, she was eligible. Claudia, yeah. That, yeah, she was that Claudia Rankine was born in Jamaica, but is a U.S. citizen. So she was eligible and the book was submitted for consideration. Um not to take away at all from the validity of the other books that were nominated, but I'm I'm surprised to see that it wasn't. I guess disappointed is not the surprised, maybe not so much disappointed. Um, not to see a book that is important as a work of art itself, but also for uh, for where it stands in the cultural moment. Um, I guess I mean I don't know a nearly enough about contemporary poetry, let alone what was published last year, to have any opinion. I saw a lot of people talking about it. I mean that's mm-hmm. as far as I know. It seems like an interesting project. Um, on the other hand, if I'm poet, I mean I almost wonder if like you think strategically, right? Like 
citizens a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like people are buying it already. Ah, so you give exposure so you to give something it someone else. else. Maybe they'll sell a few extra thousand. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if people think like that. That's probably cynical on my part. Um, but these, you know, it's three out of all the poetry published <laughs> last year. Right. You know, that's a rough spot uh, to, to get involved in. So, and I'm sure, I'm sure that the books that people are talking about within the poetry circles are different than the ones that burble up into sort of our general interest. Oh, you that's know, true for too. all we know, these were, this was the most talked about book among poets last year, for all we know, um, which says some more about our knowledge of poetry right, right. than it says anything else. Um, yeah, that's the Pulitzer's every year. Something interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's maybe we can start making some guesses about what will be Pulitzer <laughs> finalists next year. <laughs> I'm going to call A Little Life by Hanya oh, Yamagahara. Is that does that fit the uh, criteria, the eligible, the citizenship and everything? <gasps> oh, wait, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's one that people are definitely talking about. I'm trying to think what else is coming out. I'm really in love with the, what I'm reading right now. Mm. And it, I think it fits. So I'm reading Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, who wrote Arcadia and Delicate Edible Birds and The Monsters of Templeton. And it comes out in September. And it's a big novel about a complicated marriage um, and alternates perspectives. And the writing's really delicious. And it feels very Pulitzer-y. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a front runner in my mind right now. I'm not sure. Um, all right. Well, there's a new Toni Morrison novel. But save that for new books. Yeah, that's, that's, you're showing the cards. <laughs> all don't right. do that. Um, in, in terms of other new books, let's do another sponsor. Oh, yeah, do. Tell me about another We sponsor. have Elena Vanishing by Elena and Claire B. Dunkel. This is a memoir about um, – it's a, it's a memoir about surviving – eating disorder, essentially. Um, The story of a girl whose armor against anxiety became artillery against herself um, as she battled on both sides of what they call the lose-lose war in a struggle with anorexia. Um, This is told entirely from Elena's perspective over a five-year period, and it's co-written with her mother, uh, Claire Dunkel, who's an award-winning writer. This is a fascinating and intimate look at a deadly disease. Um, And um, it says here, a must-read for anyone who knows someone suffering from an eating disorder. Um, you can pre-order this uh, currently. It's not available yet, so pre-order Elena Vanishing by Elena and Claire B. Dunkel, uh, which is a memoir about anxiety and anorexia uh, through the link that we'll have in the show notes for you. Mm-hmm. Cool. Serious. Yeah, serious subject matter. Cool cover for this book. Um, such an important issue, and it's yeah. one of those things that I just don't think we can talk about enough. All right. More okay. news. So news, news. Every year. I mean, this is just something we're going to link to every year because it comes yep. out. Um, the annual ranking by the Central Connecticut State University, uh, the annual ranking of the most literate cities in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've talked about this before. They use the, the citizens' use of literacy through criteria including local bookstores, educational levels, Internet and library resources and newspaper circulation. It's such an interesting way to define literate as citizens' use of literacy. So they're not like, uh, what is the literate is as literate does, Rebecca? Right now, yeah, not what's the concrete measure of literateness, but how much are the citizens of these? Like, how else would you measure? Like, people. I mean, we've talked about this before. Like. Man, this this list sucks, or there's some criteria mm-hmm. used differently, and I guess I understand all that. But as this is an impossible project, right? yeah, I th- I like this yeah. operational definition. It's not just like where what city has the most bookstores and libraries, but presumably takes into account how those 
things like how the people who live there use per, them visits yeah. per citizen and, and things we like have that. talked before like amazon has done rankings that they have called yes. like the most literate cities and it's always just operationally defined as the cities that order the most books from amazon mm-hmm. this is definitely more well-rounded i like this approach yeah so um it, as, as the survey itself says it doesn't tend to change very much but we had a flip at the top Last mm-hmm. year, Washington, D.C. ranked number one, which also is ranked number one by Amazon, frankly. Mm-hmm. That comes out every year. Um, and this year, Minneapolis yeah. uh, came out on top. They, they, they took the spot. Um, the top ten from uh, one to ten, Minneapolis, D.C., Seattle, St. Paul, so the Twin Cities representing, uh, Atlanta, number five, Pittsburgh, Denver, San Francisco, Boston, and St. Louis, Missouri. So uh, – any surprises there? Well, not to me, but people always respond yes. to this with, where's, where's New York? Where's New York? <laughs> and New York is not even in the top, wow, not even the top 50. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the whole 100. Yeah, our uh, Not our even the top 77. KC came in at 14, yeah. and that's attributed to how Kansas City has invested in their library systems, along with Cleveland and Tulsa. Portland just um, coming out. Uh, the top 10 at number 11. Mm-hmm. Um, the only southern – well, I guess D.C. we consider a southern city. A lot of people do. Yeah, Virginia Beach is mm-hmm. 19. Atlanta, number 5. Hails from New York is 20. Oh, there it is. Okay, 20. I'm sorry. Uh, we have Austin at 22. That's interesting. Um, uh, I can I can tell you why New York doesn't crack the top five in a nutshell, and that's there's just too many people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yes, there are a lot of bookstores in New York, but you know how many people live in New York. <laughs> like, when they break out, anytime that they break out, like bookstores per capita yeah, in New disaster. York, it, it it falls. It's somewhere in Florida has the most bookstores yeah, Coral per Gables, capita, right? Florida. I think we've looked at that before. All right, let's see. Chicago's at thirty three. Yeah. Got Philly at thirty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kentucky's I mean, doing pretty well. Louisville, Jefferson County, Kentucky is forty six, and uh, Lexington mm-hmm. is up at twenty seven. Yeah, Minneapolis Wichita. people may not think of, but a really good. They have a, a, a strong arts culture across the board mm-hmm. in Minneapolis. AWP happened to be there this year. I don't know if that did anything. You know, Lots of small publishers based there, including there. Grey Wolf we Press. We just talked about a lot of bookstores and really good about um, libraries. Um, interesting stuff here. Uh, they know technology had a large impact. I guess St. Louis at number 10 is pretty – I mean, that's one that people might not yeah, think of. Yeah, and St. Right? Louis does have a bunch of independent they bookstores. Do. Um, yeah. Enough that they've formed the St. Louis Independent Bookstore Alliance that, like, they partner together to promote each other's events. Mm-hmm. And they've done, like, an indie bookstore crawl, basically. But it was a tour. Like, you got on at one bookstore and they bust people from store to store for different events through a day. It and is interesting about independent bookstores, really cool even within that. the same city – Unless the city is very small, you sort of don't compete with other bookstores in another. If you're in another, if you're in a large city with other bookstores, just because mm-hmm. people tend to go where it's local. So if it's an hour across town, you're not like in competition right. with them necessarily. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm a little surprised that we don't see more college towns. Oh, that is. Interesting. I don't know if there's a population floor that you need here, mm. because well, Omaha and Lincoln are on here. Uh, yeah. Lincoln's a pretty. That's a college town. It's pretty small. But you think something like Ann Arbor, Michigan. Or uh, Madison, Wisconsin, or even our our beloved Lawrence. Lawrence. Um, but Lawrence, like it has one library and and one independent bookstore. You know, like yeah. it doesn't have a, a lot. So maybe maybe you just need some scale. You need branches, maybe. Yeah, I wonder if those college towns are feeding the 
literacy rankings of the big cities that they're near. Like Maybe, Kansas City yeah. could have been affected by how the close proximity right. to Lawrence. Because you think educational level is one of the criteria here would be propped up by being in yeah. a college town. Um, Honolulu, I thought was interesting at number sixteen. Um, I know yeah. nothing about Hawaiian cities, but so that that one is. Anytime I see a Hawaiian city on a list like this, I'm like, huh, I wonder what the bookstore's mm-hmm. situation in Honolulu is like. <laughs> yeah, this piece that we're referring to is in USA Today, but the USA Today st- um, has a link to the full study from Central Connecticut State, mm-hmm. and it gives a, a couple of the highlight findings, including that technology is having a larger impact on reading with libraries changing dramatically in the usage and accessibility of materials, which is the thing we've talked about tons on this show. Um, newspapers are losing circulation and the number of indie and chain bookstores is shrinking, which I'm not sure that's actually accurate because didn't we read a bunch of stuff about... <laughs> yeah, it's not shrinking. All the numbers... That's wrong. Indie, that's, one like, of those con- that's one of those chestnuts that's getting passed around that just turns out not to be Chain bookstores are shrinking. Yes. The number of chain bookstores are shrinking, but more indie bookstores are opening than are closing. Mm-hmm. Um And let's see, there's a loose reference here also to Americans becoming more and more educated, but less and less literate, at least by this definition, Um, which not a sweeping statement that I'm a fan of, but also I'm not looking at the full data. So, I mean, it is interesting that this list and the Amazon list both have they have sort of uh, complementary blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is local bookstores, educational levels library resources, access to internet. It has nothing to do with how many people are buying books online, right? right it has nothing to right. do with how many people are buying ebooks from Amazon or iBooks or Google or anything else like that. Um, whereas Amazon is completely an online experience, right? So it's like <laughs> maybe if you could somehow like smash these together – you'd get a more full picture. Right. And we've talked so much as we've talked about how libraries are changing about how what it means to be literate is changing and how use of being able to use the internet and understand digital resources is part of literacy now. And it's, it's unclear from this piece to me if Jack Miller at Central Connecticut State is considering that as part of the definition. Right. So um, maybe we're more like and more... Like newspaper d- circulation mm, maybe uh, is not the most <laughs> relevant variable anymore. Right. Yeah. And not magazines. For example, right. like I don't, I don't know. Um, so that's that's super. You know, that's it is what it is. As flawed and interesting things, as yeah. are most things. Mm-hmm. Uh, more studies. Yes, uh, we've talked about something like this before. I think, mm-hmm. does it, or at least it's not um, unfamiliar to me that the top five percent of all this is UK study. Top five of authors earned forty two percent of all income received by professional writers in twenty thirteen, according to the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society. I think we've seen a study like this before, where it's so t- it's not even a power law. It's not even eighty twenty right. power law. It's like it's more like uh, the, the one the, the studies you hear about income inequality, like the top one percent do like fifty percent of the the wealth of everybody else, and mm-hmm. apparently writers are no different than that. Yeah, there's, you know, sort of an interesting spin. I think the study we talked about before was also like what the average um, income for a professional writer mm-hmm. was. And we've tied that into how most writers who write professionally are doing other things professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, very few people are like getting rich off of their book deals. And um, I saw even Emily St. John Mandel, who wrote Station Eleven, um, she continues to work a day job and she's written and tweeted about meeting people who ask, um, what do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. Well, is that your day job? No. Oh, so it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. And how, how you can be a national book award finalist and, uh, 
and, you know, are working a day job and people, you know, so frequently, I think, misunderstand really what it is to be a working writer. So these numbers are always interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, They're talking here about the paradox of how there are more people writing and publishing books than ever before, but it's harder than ever to make money from writing. Did you get into the methodology of this? I did not. I saw this link and I just didn't, uh, I hadn't dug in yet. Mm, I'm just wondering if self-publishing is in stuff is in here. And uh, yeah, this is UK. And so I also wonder um, how similar or different it is from from what we're getting in the US. Like, do you have to be a member of this society to be a part of the survey? Oh, maybe. Uh, this is, um, for them, a typical full-time writer. Oh, yeah, every writer. member of the ALCS and the Society of Authors who had provided those organizations with the email I address see. was contacted and asked to complete the survey. Okay. So, you know, they were at, you know, all surve- <laughs> survey. <laughs> How many times? We should have, like, a pre-recorded clip or, like, insert, like... Opt-in self-reporting surveys. Opt-in self-reporting surveys are really weird, right? They do... Yeah. <sighs> Anyway, we don't we don't know that that's as representative of everyone who could have responded. Right. Maybe but if you're pissed off about how much money you make, you're more likely to respond. Maybe. Or it's maybe a, if you make a shit ton. Oh boy. Oh. Boy, <laughs> all right, Mark. The poop and the pope. The poop and the, the pope. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you make a lot of writing, <laughs> uh, money from writing, you're gonna respond. You're like you you want to show off or whatever. You know, like there could be weird biases um, in stuff like this. So anyway, that, that's something else. Also, who are these people that are members of this? Mm-hmm. And it says of them now uh, only 11.5% of these authors are earning their living solely from writing, down from 40% a decade ago. Yeah. So wait, does it say how many people responded? No. Mm. No. Let's see. Anyway, um, I'm sure not all of the 33,000 did. Right. Um, only 7%. Responded? Yeah. Oh, small sample small size. Small sample size. Um, <laughs> and of those, only, only 1,477 completed the whole survey. Okay. All right. We're in trouble here. We are. Let's move we're on. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Because 11% means that 14 of these people that responded earned right. their, their living right. from writing. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I don't know how else you would do this. Like, I don't know how you would get a good response rate. I don't know. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't know know data about response rates and what's considered reasonable. The thing that I want someone to do is pull, like, IRS data. Right. Yes. Every person who, and that's like a job for an academic, is pull IRS data and look at people who classify themselves as writer mm-hmm. and what their income was and do like a giant aggregate thing that doesn't depend on anyone's weird biases or self-report. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no attempt to verify any information. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it, but whatever you might say, it is down from previous mm-hmm. surveys of the same group uh, markedly over the last decade. Yeah. Down like 40%. This piece is a thing that I do appreciate about this piece is that it's notably devoid of any value judgment about these numbers um, or any hand-wringing. And if this had been a survey of U.S. writers' income, I am almost positive that we would have gotten clickbait headlines about uh, even more impossible to be writers Mm -hmm. now. Writers are doomed. Sky is falling. uh, and, And writers jumping onto that bandwagon where 
I don't know. I mean, I'm enough of a capitalist that I don't think that you get to be a writer just because you want to be a writer mm. or that you get to be anything just because you want to be that thing. Um, well, one thing I was, yeah, I was thinking one thing like, <laughs> has this, you know, this society has been around for a while. Is its membership keeping up with sort of current trends in what's popular in publishing? For example, mm. YA, right? Right. Which is growing hugely in the last decade. Are the people, are YA writers a member of this society? Like, I don't know the answer to that. My sense is no, from what this looks mm -hmm. like to me. Um, but I, I don't know the answer to that. So there's a lot of caveats and things. Self-publishing, it doesn't right. seem to me that these are the sorts of people self-publishers would be um, lumped in with here at the same time. I don't know if that would make the data seem better or worse, depending on your point of view. But these big sort of titanic, tectonic changes, that's mixing my metaphors here, um, <laughs> that are going on in publishing, how representative are they in the membership of this particular group? My sense is not very, or at least yeah. there's there's big holes in the, the demographics of the, the people responding there. Okay. Hey, speaking of self-publishing. Self yeah, look at that. It's like you sometimes the agenda does it for us. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in Florida, Florida this week, speaking of Florida, Florida. Uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, last month, the first bookstore dedicated to just featuring self-published authors was opened. It's called Gulf Coast Bookstore. Mm -hmm. And it says they only sell books by indie authors. I still have nomenclature problems with that. So self-published. Right. Um, lots of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm here. Gulf Coast operates very differently from a traditional bookstore. Um, Self-published authors rent shelf space for three months for $60 plus a $15 setup fee. So you pay $75 to get your book onto the shelf yeah. in Gulf Coast bookstore. And presumably more than one copy. Right. Which is apparently close to what they might spend to exhibit a single title at a day-long book fair. Okay. Um, it, Gulf Coast handles stocking and restocking and the authors it says receive 100% of every sale rather than 40% from a bookstore that sells their books on consignment. Um, so if, if this is the thing that you don't know much about, right. um, independent bookstores, you know, order their new titles from random house, like straight through random house or through Ingram from one of the big book and Taylor, distributors. No. If you have a self published book, usually what you have to do is go into these indie bookstores or contact them somehow. And if they, you know, think that they can sell your book um, to the degree that it deserves a, a, one of the limited spots on their shelves, then they might take it on consignment from you, um, depending on what your setup is. And then you get 40% of the sale. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not paying for shelf space typically. Like if I go down to the fountain in Richmond, there will be some self-published books on the shelves. It's usually local related titles, you know, stuff about Richmond or related to Richmond in some way, because that's what they can sell here um, that they can give shelf space to that's not a bigger, broadly visible title. And so the, the piece in Publishers Weekly that interviews these guys kind of is like, well, the great thing is that there's no curation. Anybody can pay to have their books on the shelves of this self-published mm -hmm. focused bookstore. I think this is a terrible idea. I just all the way around like readers, what's the reader's incentive to go into a bookstore that's stocked with books you've most likely never heard of? Authors paying for shelf space are most likely not going to get that investment back. Like you pay 75 bucks for your shelf space for three months. So if you have a $15 paperback, 
even if you get 100% of every sale, you've got to sell six books in those three months. Yeah. To get it. And I was talking to our friend Josh Christie, who is both, a, he runs an independent bookstore um, in Portland, Maine, and has self published a book and is a, a now an author who's been published by a traditional press as well. So Josh brought a lot of perspective, but he pointed out this math is kind of funky because unless the people are paying cash, there's no way the authors can receive 100% mm-hmm. of every sale. There's a 3 to 5% credit card charge, unless somehow this business is absorbing that fee. Yeah, and, I guess. And there's a weird note in here about like, if we had to have staff, things would be different. So like, it's unclear how they're paying the people who work there, or if the people who work there are paid by some other business that these people also know. But I I don't think this is actually a service to self-published writers. It looks to be one, but I don't think it actually is. I certainly don't think it's a service to readers. Like they're not really solving a, a reader's problem here. Also, the self-published authors have to be local. Yeah. Which is weird. They cap the number of titles in any particular genre. Uh, like this could work for, Josh was telling me at Sherman's in Portland that on any given year, some of the store's best-selling books will be self-published books that are about local topics. Um, yeah, so that, that maybe, part seems interesting, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so if you've, ri- if you've written like a history of Fort Myers, Florida, or the guide to the best donuts in the area. Oh, I'm listening. Yeah, or something like yeah. that, hmm. then you've got a hook for a local interest, but if you have that hook for a local interest, you probably don't need to pay for shelf space right. in a store. Like, also, like, how do you pitch this to customers? Well, that's that, Josh is very useful. His points about the actual math are very interesting. I guess I'm yeah. coming up from the, the more, like, average reader point of view. It's like, why would I go in this store? Mm-hmm. Like, I'd have to be already interested in self-published print copies. Right. Like, I think the value of being self-published in a traditional bookstore is, as they say in the article, it's very difficult to compete with Dan Brown. It's like, right. yes, but you know what? People come into the bookstore for Dan Brown and maybe your book is sitting there, right? Right. Like, that, that's the thing. Like, I don't know. I, I've, uh, this seems like a very fraught issue all the way around. Like, who is this good for? It seems to me it's good only for the bookstore owners if they can get enough people to pay to have their, right. their stuff put on the shelf. Yeah, it doesn't solve a problem that readers have. It presents itself as solving a problem that self-published authors have of getting their books in front of readers and getting space on bookshelf, on bookstore shelves. But I don't think it actually solves them the getting customers problem. I wouldn't think so. Um, And I, you know, does the the bookstore have incentive to sell books? I mean, maybe yeah. for repeat customers, and repeat customers like, being the, the self-published as authors. A customer, the last thing I really want is to shop at a store that touts itself as uncurated. Yeah, that's the other part I was thinking. Like, now, it might be one thing if it was like, these are the most interesting self-published, like these are real gems that you should find out about, Like, but that's not what this is. Like, And you could do that on a really good shelf in yeah. you know, or like a section in mm-hmm. an indie bookstore and many indie bookstores do do that these are great small press books these are great self-published books these are great local books by self-published writers um maybe like, maybe i'm wrong maybe there's enough local books local authors mm-hmm. read about I'm the community ag- maybe enough people are interested in that boy i'd be shocked though i'd be yeah. very surprised i'm interested listeners if this is a thing like if your city had this bookstore 
would you go? And if you would, why or why not? You can let us know on Twitter or shoot us an email, podcast yeah. it bookriot.com like i'm going to go to the fountain this afternoon for our byob book drive event and i'm going to do what i usually do there which is hey what are you guys into lately that you're hand selling a lot of and then i'm going to buy whatever they recommend Mm. because it's a great bookstore with good curation and the do they have a self-pub shelf or they do any of that uh, they don't break it uh, they don't break it uh, out as right. self-pubbed, but there's a big shelf of local interest and a, a huge percentage of those local interest titles are always by self-published writers because it's, it is difficult to get, a, you know, a small, yeah. like a small subject matter book published by a large mainstream publisher. And so like locally, you know, locally relatable things are one of the success areas for self-publishing. It, for it sure. makes a lot of sense to me. I think even before self-publishing thing was a thing we talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, they used to call it vanity publishing. That right, still right. happened, I think, for local books a lot. Like people yeah. would publish their – I remember The Raven, the independent bookstore in my hometown of Lawrence. They have a really good Kansas-Lawrence section. Like that's part of what they do. And my memory is a lot of the books in there were either univer- local university presses or what it was called vanity press there where you paid mm-hmm. someone else to print it and then you would sell it, which I always thought that was – a an unfortunate term, but you yeah. know, that makes a lot of sense because the market is small. Um, so a traditional publisher, the, you know, is it really worth it to them yeah, to do? Richmond being the capital of con- the Confederacy yeah. and being the state capital, we have lots of, you know, very rich history and there's a lot to research and a lot to write about. And so we do have a lot of local authors who self-publish books about those topics. Mm-hmm. And those do well on the local interest shelf of the fountain, which and the store is situated in a part of town that gets a lot of foot traffic from people who are in town for conventions. And so visitors who want to learn something about Richmond can stop in there. And it work, like that works out very well. Um, yeah. Sherman's in Portland, which Josh manages, is a is in a city that gets a ton of summer tourism as well. And, you know, some of that, too, like his book, his first book was Maine Beer. And, you know, they got local people who drink beer and want to know about it. They've got visitors from out of town who want to go visit the breweries. And so, like, Josh's book was one of Sherman's best-selling books last year, um, one of the self-published books that was one of their best-selling mm-hmm. books. Um, I think it does work. Self-publishing works um, really well for local interest, and that meets a need. But, man, like, come to this bookstore that's not curated just as a as a reader – I want that curation. I want those booksellers who are like, these are the things that we've read and that we love and we have this limited shelf space and this book gets a spot because it's good. Yeah. The curation is the people who want to pony up the money to get their book on the shelf. Yeah. And there are only 10, you can only do 10 copies. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. So And so, and you've got to sell. All of them. All of them. <laughs> like to make any money. Yeah. Hmm. Tying back to that thing about the average income of yeah, right, writers. Right. It's all. <laughs> This is I don't like no, this. This I, is a thumbs down. I don't I don't think that's that's something that I'm interested in at all. All right, something I am interested in though. Mm-hmm. Um Goodreads in its sort of slow creep of being more integrated with Amazon and Amazon products and services and subsidiaries. Um this week uh announced integrating audiobook samples into the Goodreads app. So Okay. You can go in um of the those same 180,000 Audible titles that you get on Audible, though you can mm-hmm. get samples of them in Goodreads in the book listing pages themselves. So you're going to get a pop-up window in a web browser, um, or it'll. If, I think if you're in the app, it shoots you over to the Audible app. I'm not exactly sure. Um, 
Of course, not all titles on Goodreads because there's a billion jillion. I think that's the the number they print as the number of books listed on Goodreads. But when mm-hmm. it is available, you can find a listen below button right there. Just another – audiobooks are eating the world. I mean, audiobooks are hot, hot, yeah. hot, 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 hot. I love that audiobooks – hot, hot, hot thing that people can walk around with all these audiobooks on their phones and in their pockets. Amanda and I talked a bunch about excerpts last yeah. week, but, but man, I'm just not a fan of a sample of a thing. Maybe I'm unusual. Like publishers seem to think and like, you know, Audible and Amazon and Goodreads seem to think readers want excerpts of stuff to help them make their decisions. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you with audio, I think is a little different because if you don't like the narrator's voice. Oh, that's true. Like some of it, I wonder if you're even listening for content, but you're more listening for the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Like, is this a voice I like? Does the production value seem good? Is the speed, you know, like, right. I think there might be some secondary factors in excess of the words being said, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, I am more likely to sample audio yeah. than just text. That's true. I mean, also makes sense for Amazon because they want more people being pushed over to Audible. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a lot of people that haven't tried one. If it make it easier to try an audiobook for the first time, uh, that might make sense. And uh, part two of the slow creep is mm. that um, Goodreads is integrating sponsored book placements into Goodreads <sighs> news, your, news, your news feed. Yeah, um, they are promising it'll be transparent that those will always be marked sponsored, um, and that it will be relevant to what you read. Uh, and that they hope it'll be a consistent part of the design. But as you scroll through your Goodreads, you know, algorithm-based whatever, um, with the recommendations for you, you're going to start seeing sponsored books. Probably. I mean, um, it'd probably feel a lot like the sponsored posts you see in Facebook, right? That's yeah. picking well, up like, some data about you and shooting it into algorithm algorithm and it spits out girl on the train or and whatever it is. Amazon has such a huge data yes. set and Goodreads also has an, an enormous data set. Um, hopefully these will be pretty good. Yeah. Like I'm not. Goodreads, Goodreads I'm recommendations just, tend to be pretty good uh, if it's yeah. all related to that. And I know but these are, are sponsored, people, right? That's the curation part. Like yeah, the, the yeah. clean algorithm maybe spits out good recommendations, mm-hmm. but who knows about someone has to pay for it to get into the algorithm to even but be maybe, suggested to you. Yeah, maybe they can code it in a way that will make it useful, like give this sponsored book to people who like X, Y, Z. Um, hopefully that will be... Well, but you and I know how this works. The advertiser will say, give it to people who like X, Y, right, Z, not right, like right. actually legitimately the people who like this book that we're trying to promote, rated mm-hmm. correlation with a high review of these other books. You know, that's not... How, I don't... I wouldn't imagine that's how it's going to work. Um, right. But we'll see. Yeah, it could be It could be useful. Like, you know, to make it the best for readers, which would then make it the most effective for the the people spending money to advertise. You would want to tie them to like, what books is this book actually similar right. to? And you could, you could mine. Like if I were a publisher with a title, I would say like, these are the, the titles that we think this book is similar to. And if Goodreads and Amazon were going to share data with their advertisers about stuff, they could say, well, actually, you know, the people who read Gone Girl all rank, these three other titles also very similarly, the, these, they all show up together. Mm-hmm. And your book seems similar to this other thing more than it's similar to Gone Girl. So we would recommend mapping it over there, even though you would really like to think it's like Gone Girl. Um, yeah. I don't know how involved they're going to get, but it could be cool. I know there are some people who are upset about, you know, having to see sponsored stuff in their feeds wherever, but like it's a free service. Yep. And so you, you pay with your eyeballs and now your eyeballs are going to go onto sponsored book recommendations. 
I don't think this is a problem. It's clearly marked. Like mm-hmm. the, you know, we, we do see book coverage all the time <laughs> that not clearly um, marked, that is not clearly marked. I've watched videos that like don't reveal until the end of their 2000 words of show or in notes, the notes that the thing that's collapsed at the bottom was of the sponsored. Thing. Um, as long as it stays transparent and you know that the thing is an ad. Yeah. Okay. Just ignore it. If whatever. Yeah. I, but I'm also not a Goodreads power user, so it's not like disrupting yeah. an experience. Yeah, and also, that I, I mean, to be fair, our own biases are we run we run a, a website and a company that we do ads, so like we're not opposed to them in general because, yeah. as it often is said, it's hard to be opposed to something that pays the bills. Um, right. All right. Speaking of paying the bills, we got to do another. Let's do another sponsor. sponsor. I'm really excited about this one, but but you you Me do too. you do this- the ad. This book has been um, getting just tons of buzz lately. Uh, the Turner House by Angela Flournoy, which came out, I think came out this week. It's brand new. Yeah. Um, uh, it is a, it's yes, I think it came a out on new Tuesday. or recent release. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, this is a, a novel about a family. Um, they've lived on Yarrow Street for over 50 years. The house has seen 13 children grow up and leave and sometimes return. It's seen the arrival of grandchildren. Uh, it's set in Detroit, and so it's seen the, the fall of Detroit's east side and the loss of the father at the head of their family. The house still stands despite abandoned lots, uh, the, an embattled city, which Detroit has been for a long time, and the inevitable shift outward to the suburbs. And now um, Viola, who is the ailing matriarch, has forced herself to leave the home and move in with her eldest son. And the family has discovered that the house is, is worth just a tenth mm. of the mortgage. So the children are called home to decide its fate. Um, and to, you know, make peace with their pasts and with these complicated family relationships and to determine the family's future. So you've got this story of an American family. You've got American dream stuff. Um, Detroit has been figuring prominently in fiction lately. And in a, in a totally different vein, it was the, the center of broken monsters last year. Um, but disappearing neighborhoods and you know, Flournoy is interested in how fiction can resurrect a disappearing city or a disappearing neighborhood and give it new life. Um, family lore, believing or not believing in ghosts and how that relates to culture, class, religion, education. There is so much here. Um, I was really interested in this book. And then as soon as I got the whole, the kids are all called home yes. thing. Yes, man. getting the band back together. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So, so sold. It's It's just getting tons of praise. Um, Ayanna Mathis called it utterly moving and unputdownable. She's, you know, certainly a trustworthy recommender as mm-hmm. well. But everybody that I know who's read this has loved it. Um, and we're starting to hear a lot about it from Book Riot contributors and Book Riot readers. So I'm happy to have them sponsoring so that we can talk more about it. If you're interested, The Turner House by Angela Flournoy, there will be a link to purchase in the show notes. And do let us know if you read yeah, it, what you think. Forward. I'm going to read this um, before too long. Uh, okay. All right. You just added this next one, like before we got oh, going. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, Shakespeare. It, this is cool. Um, so you know, there's all there's there's speculation about of several different manuscripts that may or may not have been written in, in whole or in part um, by the Bard himself. Actually, happy hundred, uh, happy birthday to the Bard mm. today is his uh, birthday. Right. Um, not hundred. It's much more than that. Many hundreds. Many many hundreds. Um, so this one, there's this one um, particular play called the Double Falsehood. Okay. That's long been speculated to like 
it's around the same time as Shakespeare, but who among the coterie of writers and, and playwrights of the time maybe had something to do with it? Not really sure. So two University of Texas researchers used a computer analysis program to determine that he was at least a co-author. And many other scholars are convinced. So basically, this is uh, this is textual analysis. So what basically it's more sophisticated than this. But basically, what they did is they took the extant collection of Shakespeare's um, work and fed it into uh, a database, and it counted things like how many times they used definite articles, which prepositions mm-hmm. he favors versus a sort of a standard um, use of the time. Um, so like. A, the, of, by, for, the. So these aren't even like really fancy, unusual right. words. It's just trying to track common words used in a, uh, that are de- deviate substantially in a statistically significant way from a more common usage. Um, so also other works by Fletcher and Theobald and I think uh, Christopher Marlowe were also fed in. So anyone who's sort of a candidate around this time, these little function words, even uh-huh. will and be. Um, so So they say like, so basically, that represents sort of a textual fingerprint that, you know, if Science. I know it's so interesting, right? <laughs> it's so great. Um, and so there's actually this book that came out in 2011, The Secret Life of Pronouns, What Our Words Say About Us. It's also a, sort of describing how this can be used to uh, to determine things like they, a couple of interesting things like oh, President Obama uses I less than any other recent president. And Lady Gaga's tweets show her to be a bit wild and also thoughtful and somewhat prone to depression. So um, Double Falsehood, most have never heard of it. Um, The play apparently was drawn from Cardinio based on an early episode in Don Quixote. I know that one well. It's actually really good. It's like it kind of has a Shakespeare thing to it. Mistaken identity. You're wearing Mm -hmm. wearing, – you're switching genders. You're falling in love. Everything else like that. So anyway, so the determination was that it was at least partially authored. By Shakespeare, so they're you know these are st- these are statisticians. Like mm-hmm. they're never going to say yes, one hundred percent. There's no way, right. you know. These are people that are just trying to reject their null hypothesis. Yeah, um, the first three acts were probably written at least primarily by Shakespeare, and the end of the play is a little more muddy. It could be Fletcher, it could be Theobald. So the play itself wasn't published until 1727. So, you know, that's several, I think uh, Shakespeare died in 1609. Mm-hmm. So 120 years after, and this is not the, the time where textual fidelity was at its strongest. So it could be a couple things cobbled together. Maybe someone rewrote it, used pieces. Maybe one of these other, maybe one of these other authors got a hold of it and finished it out themselves anyway. But the, the, the findings suggest that in, there's substantial portions that mm-hmm. are Shakespeare. So I think this is fascinating. I love this kind of it's stuff. It's so. I love this stuff, too. This is so – to me, it's so much more interesting than a bunch of scholars, like, throwing their feelings at what they think happened based on what they've read, like, actually using software that we have technology to do this. It's just so cool, and it makes me wonder what else we could do. Mm-hmm. With it, like maybe someone could program a really great Shakespeare Twitter bot that that takes, you know, all the stuff that Shakespeare, all of the words that Shakespeare wrote and the frequency with which he used those words and then makes up tweets (laughs) in Shakespeare's voice. Um, I just think that would be delightful. But this is it's so, so interesting. And it's something that would have been extremely difficult to do without computers, right? Like counting yeah. individual words right, and like right. doing something quickly. Um, and some of the skeptics, I guess double falsehood has been a point of contention for a, a mm. long while in Shakespearean circles. And some even the skeptics have long thought it, it's not Shakespeare said, you know, this is pretty compelling stuff. And, yeah. you know, we get to live, and, you know, we don't know for sure. 
But the best guess is probably, yes, a lot of this was Shakespeare and do with that what you will. I think I'm going to read this at some point. I'd like to see what it was. It's not generally considered to be awesome as, as mm. Shakespeare plays go, though apparently it's been performed a couple of times and people have liked it. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is, like one of these uh, mistaken identity love plays with, with great language. And, um, you know, it'd be interesting, I'm sure, now an interesting case study would be if, let's say you showed the play to, uh, you know, two groups of people, told one of them it's by Shakespeare and uh-huh. told one of them it's by this guy Theobald. I'm mm. sure the ratings of the play would be different after the fact. Yes. Right? I'm sure the people who said, oh, it's great. The other ones, maybe they like it, but I, I doubt that patina of Shakespeare on it, oh, I'm sure it makes a huge. Double blind, double blind Shakespeare. Double blind Shakespeare experiment for the win. Um, okay. This is, you know, after Book Riot someday, maybe we'll just fund idiosyncratic literary <laughs> double, research. Double blind literary <laughs> research uh, things here. Um, interesting there. I, I guess there's some other plays that are that are out there that they're going to do this too. The other one I was thinking about before was like, I was only, I was even wondering about like some like biblical stuff if they've done this. Oh, yeah. You know, it's long been thought that, uh, was it King Solomon? Yeah, King Solomon wrote a lot of the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. I wonder if it would hold up under this sort of textual analysis. Like, not even this King David, but even the same people write Proverbs. Right. And I can't even remember sure. which ones or it like was. The scribes that are known or at least thought to have changed things over the yeah. years or focused on particular details. It would be cool to be able to track down yeah. some notes about... It's weird you know, that we can't find the skeleton of Miguel de Cervantes, but we can tell... Uh, whether or not Shakespeare wrote something <laughs> with the computer. Uh, anyway. Um, Poor Cervantes. Yeah, one last, let's do one last kind of idiosyncratic okay. story. Um, this is one of those stories that I kind of like and kind of don't like at the same time. Um, so mm-hmm. Bookshout is a company that's, a, it's largely an ebook company. They distribute ebooks and they help publishers um, distribute ebooks with codes and various other kinds of things. And one thing, and I've only ever gotten one of these because on a box of Cheerios, there was a kid's book written by Tony Morrison. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I can't remember something about peanut butter fudge or something. I can't remember the title. Mm-hmm. I have it on the bookshelf. Yeah, we talked about that a year, yeah, so, a year ago. so ago. And this happens from time to time. We get a thin book that's like shrink-wrapped along with the uh, the book, or excuse me, mm-hmm. the box of cereal. Well, Bookshout and Simon & Schuster are getting together to to bundle e-books with, uh, with, the, with boxes of cereal, which... On first blush, to me, it makes a lot of sense, right? You don't have to mm-hmm. shrink wrap the thing. You know, you put the code right on there. Delivery is super easy. It makes a lot of sense. Problem, of course, is that especially kids' books, you really need a good e-reader to have a good experience with them, right? Right. And not everyone can afford a good e-reader. You know, a lot of people don't have access to it, especially kids, right? Where this is a good box, buy the box, surely give the book to the kid, fire and forget mm-hmm. it. It's so other way you got to have a parent either lend them an e-reader or some family member or the parents got to have an e-reader in the first, in the first place, place. Yeah, they also, they also have to go to the extra stubble to go through uh, Bookshout's proprietary uh, e-reader app, which is something mm-hmm. you and I love. We love. The, oh yeah, the, uh, proprietary, proprietary apps are just my favorite. That's, that's something we really advocate for and think really <laughs> everyone should. I, I don't know when does the irony break? Do people get that I don't mean any of this? Uh, sometimes I come across as too dry. I've been told that before, but just as clear, we do not like them. We wish they would all burn in fire. They're, the They're the worst. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, just th- like, go ahead. What do you think about it? I would that? say I, this feels to me like road to hell paved with good yeah, intentions yeah. Um, of, hey, we'll put ebooks on kids' cereal boxes. Like of all the things to give away in cereal, a book is by far the thing that 
will get our biggest stamp of approval. But if the book is really only accessible to people who have access to the technology on which to read it, and then they can't read it on whatever device or app they have, they've got to download your special mm. Bookshout proprietary app and read in that. It's not really a service anymore. Now you're trying to capture customers, which of course is what anybody who's giving a free sample of anything is trying to do, but at least provide some actual value as you try to capture those customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, like anyone who can, uh, not everyone who can afford a box of Cheerios can afford the kind of phone that you put reading apps on or can afford uh, you know, a, an iPad or a tablet with a Bookshout app on it, or has access to education that teaches them how to use those things. Um, yeah. It's meh. It's interesting. I don't love this. I don't love that. The other thing that makes me mad about this, can you guess? I don't know. Tell me. We can bundle ebooks on our cereal, but I can't get on <laughs> my hardcover. <laughs> well, it offers access to one of nine popular children's books. But, but we have the technology here. It's it, just, it's right. just sitting we do. here on we my do. honey note. Right. Well, so this goes back. I was thinking about that and how like Barnes & Noble tested the yeah. bundling at the holidays. And Bookshout, we also saw, had partnered with some indie bookstores last year to offer bundling on a few select titles. And how we, we both always complain that it's like limited time and limited titles. And that isn't necessarily a good measure of the larger reading public's interest in having these things. And like Barnes & Noble presented the bundling at the holidays as a buy the paperback mm -hmm. for your friend for Christmas. You're going to wrap it up, you want to give them a physical gift, but then use the bundle to get yourself the ebook of the same thing. Um, so they were pitching, get the two copies of the book, but for two different people rather than bundling like for one customer to have a physical and a digital copy. I don't know. Maybe, maybe like we're the only two people on Bundle Island. But you know, I don't care. <laughs> Doesn't mean I don't want it. It's true. Can I get one the thing that no one else wants? The donuts are delicious here on Bundle Island. Uh, gener a generous reading all the time, cutting the Pulitzer's a break, but just, yeah, anyway. Just give us uh, our bundles, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe, I mean, a lot of people do have smartphones across demo, you know, across class boundaries. That's mm -hmm. one thing I've seen recently. So maybe, maybe it's, there's more penetration. Maybe, maybe more people have access to to an e-reading solution than I think. Though kids' books on a and phone are like, disastrous. Is that is even digitally? Someone, like, is someone at Bookshout and Simon & Schuster actually looking at how many of these boxes of Cheerios were sold and how many of the people who bought them actually downloaded the book? Like, they should have... They have UPC codes on these boxes, right? So they should be able to know 100,000 people got these boxes of Cheerios and out of those 100,000, this many people used the code to get the book and this was the most popular yeah. book. And I just hope, beyond hope, that someone is doing something with that data to help them determine whether this was a successful project, whether projects like this should be done in the future. But like, I just don't have enough faith in publishing to think they're actually doing it. To look and say like, what's the actual download through of these things? Right. Or like, what's the metric? Like, how are they going mm. to decide if this was a successful project? And just way too many of the times that I've sat in rooms and asked, like, how will you know if this thing is a success? The answer has just been like, well, it depends. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's very hand wavy, shoulder Well, no one we see it, just like pornography. Yeah. And I want publishing to like, we have this data and I want publishing to figure out how to use it so that our projects are effective and so that publishing progresses in the, the direction that it should be progressing to be mm -hmm. 
accessible and to keep up with the times. And I don't know. I wonder how much they're paying General Mills for this. Oh. Like, what's what's the dollar, dollar, dollar bill situation? Mm Because you know it's not cheap to get stuff straight and put on honey. Right. Because maybe Mattel wanted to put a Barbie in these boxes and you had to pay for putting your books in instead. Well, I mean, all this kind of, you know, like when you get get the Star Wars Happy Meal thing, like it's all Right. It's all paid. paid. It's all paid. Um, so I'm sure it's not cheap. I mean, maybe they're thinking it was just like a rich ad. Like maybe they don't even care if you download it. You just want to see the names of the titles and maybe mm. the next time you're in the bookstore. Just exposure, man. Just exposure, man. All right. We got one more ad before we get to, we get to speaking of exposure, one more ad before we get to talk to new books. It is Random House Audiobooks. Try audiobooks.com. They're back again. You know, it's springtime. I was, there's actually flowers in Brooklyn now. Nice. Yeah, I was thinking in August they wouldn't they wouldn't come uh, again. Our daffodils have already come and gone. Yeah, so gardening is a hobby that a lot of people use this time of year. It's a time that you think about, and this is kind of one of the larger um, goals of tryoutbooks.com is like get you to think about times in your life where you could listen to audiobooks that you hadn't really thought of before. And right. being outside and gardening is one of them. So they've got to go to tryoutbooks.com slash gardening. If you're into gardening, that's one thing you could do. But go to tryoutbooks.com. They have a lot of different activities, like if you're doing a commute, you're doing a road trip, you're doing crafts, something else like that. They've got selections for you to pick out. I don't think I said this on the show. I think I said it on Twitter. But, like, we're doing some home improvement projects around the the, the, the domain here. And, uh, you know, it's not as bad to regrout your shower if you've got an audiobook that you're cooking. It's not, it's not terrible. I mean, it's still it's still it's terrible, but it's not terrible. <laughs> That's not how you described grouting but to it's me not, yesterday. It's, not, it's terrible, but it's not terrible. It's less terrible. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's fun. You know, you, it's like ah, oh, at least I have the audiobook. It's kind of a salve to what to what ails you. Cleaning the house. You know, that's one thing that doing chores of different kinds, uh, not doing dishes, things like that. I I have kind of the the audiobook comes on anytime I've got like five or ten minutes. You know, I've always got my phone with me. Sometimes I don't even put my headphones on. I just put on speaker when I'm walking around um, and doing stuff when when the kids aren't here and I've got some time to myself to take care of things around the house. Um, so go to tryaudiobooks.com slash gardening, especially if you're interested in gardening, but you can go try to try audiobooks.com to various kinds of activities they want to do there. I am listening, or I just listened to, a, a, I read it originally in print, but I went back to Smarter Than You Think by our good friend Clive Yay! Thompson. So good. Which is about how it's it's sort of the anti-internet making us dumb doom saying things. Like it's my favorite book about technology. It's really interesting about how internet and digital technology has uh, as as an accessory to human thought um, and what it allows us to do that we haven't been done before. So you know you get, you get a lot of like our attention is bad and no one can think anymore and everything is mm-hmm. the worst and basically we're like those blob people and uh, Wally. Um, but this is thinking about like things that weren't possible for social social projects, niche interests of a certain kind. Um, speaking of biases, you and I are biased for this because our jobs and things that we care about, we didn't have ways to talk about them in the ways we have now, which seems much more rich and interesting right. um, and remunerative. We should also say that as well. Um, but that's one that right, our current jobs wouldn't yeah, exist without right. you the kinds of things that Clive is writing right. about. Right. Without um, you know digital media distribution technology being cheap and easy to use. Like we're not tech people, but we can make a podcast relatively simply um, mm-hmm. at a reasonable price. Where just I think even five years ago, distributing 
a, uh, a 50 megabyte file to 10,000 people would cost basically more than my entire organ situation is worth. Like it, it just <laughs> no, no amount of kidneys. I couldn't have any amount of kidneys uh, and pay for it. Um, my entire organ situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a show title. Um, but Smarter Than You Think by Clive Thompson. It is a good audio book and a good read and really interesting if you are oh, great thinking um, overtly or even uh, covertly, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, about the internet and technology and how it's uh, affecting what we do and think about and understand. Yeah. I'm. I have just started um, the audiobook of Missoula by John Krakauer, oh, God. which came out this yeah. week. So it's also a good segue into our new books segment. But Krakauer, you know, a renowned, maybe our most famous current long form investigative Ooh, journalist. Yeah. He takes investigative. He takes, yeah, probably. Yeah, he takes big questions. And this book is about Michael Lewis, maybe. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, Krakauer, crack Michael yeah, Lewis. Crack crack, it's yeah, Krakauer. Crack right. They're answering different yes, questions. Yes. Anyway, John Krakauer. Missoula um, is about rape on college campus and rape culture um, in a larger sense. Um, between January of 2008 and May of 2012, there were 300, more than 350 sexual assaults reported in Missoula, Montana, which has the University of Montana in town. And so Krakauer goes in through that lens of um, what was happening in this particular town at this particular time that resulted in this many sexual assaults that were reported. And if those are the numbers that are reported, how many more were unreported? And he looks at rape on campus, why women are so reluctant to report rape um, in terms of how the culture responds, how the police respond, um, what the incentives and disincentives are for doing so, and what we need to really be talking about as we attempt to create a culture that is safer for women in general and college campus campuses that are safer for women in specific. I've just started. Um, I'm so afraid of this book uh -huh. um, because of the truth telling uh -huh. that is going to smack me in the face. Um, and he interviews women about their experiences. There's a warning at the front that some of the book will be difficult to read or difficult to listen to. Um, I think I'm going to buy a print copy also because I'm, I have this feeling that some of it is going to be really, really difficult to hear yeah. um, out loud. And I might just want to be able to step away. Um, but a big, important book um, by a respected journalist who we can trust Did into the these wild, kinds of things. Uh, yeah, Into the Wild. Under the Banner of Heaven. Into Thin Air. Mm -hmm. uh, he did three... What's the? What was the one about the three cups of tea thing? Oh, what was that Three called? cups of deceit um, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where that yeah. whole thing was a sham, essentially. Like the yeah, guy and that was like a, like a Kindle single oh, right. kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, situation. Yeah, but, but yeah, he's... Uh, Krakauer is incredible. And um, all of the reviews that I've read of Perfect the book have been, have been really strong. Right. Um but this is, I've just started this on audio. It's a, it's a new Random House title. Um, uh, an important book, if not an enjoyable experience. <sighs> like getting your teeth um, cleaned. Important, yeah, but, but not enjoyable necessarily. Right. Yeah. One of those that I do think I'm going to end up feeling like is a title that everybody should yeah. read because of uh, how important the subject matter is. Um, so that transitions yeah. us to new books. New books. We had Toni Morrison Day earlier this week. We did. Uh, God Help the Child is her latest novel. It is out now. She is 84 and still going. And, and going nowhere soon, she assures us. In yes. that New York oh, Times profile, she's like, I feel great. I'm right. still working. 
European reporters keep calling me to figure out if I'm going to die and like I'm not going anywhere soon. So that that profile, by the way, is incredible. If you're interested in Toni yes. Morrison, read that. She was on um, Terry Gross's show on NPR earlier this week, and that's a really fantastic interview to listen to. Yeah, she talks author about publicity stuff that's like actually worth linking to with with, yeah. with Tomo. No doubt about Man, that. She's, a, she's such a good interview. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so God Help the Child is her first novel set in contemporary times. Very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talks about that in some of the interviews also, why she's resisted writing about contemporary culture and the ways that she is afraid she doesn't understand mm-hmm. contemporary culture. Um, it's about a, a woman named Bride who has very, very dark skin um, about her how her light-skinned mother uh not nec- not rejected but mistreated her because of the color of her skin and how that has affected her her whole life so the the big picture like top-down theme is about how childhood traumas affect our entire lives but in the tony morrison vein it's about race and class and color um and she's said in many interviews she wanted to separate race from color mm. for this kind of nuanced conversation that she's having. Um, I've, I've seen many people who have read all of Morris and say this is not the place to start with her, um, that this book is best read with her backlist Home is the same way I felt like. I think yeah. so. Um, I feel like all of the newer ones that have been shorter, like we've talked about how there was sort of this expanding and now there's been a contracting mm-hmm. of her fiction um, that uh, f- from love on, yeah. I think you need to have read the backlist to really know what she's doing. She's one of those writers who her works speak to each other. You know, in Paradise, there's a lot about the people, the black people with really dark, the, the eight rock, I think they called them, the people mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. really, really dark skin being shunned and ostracized or like, you know, separated out for some reason. So that's been a thoroughgoing concern for her as well. Because I, I well, remember the, reading that because that came out yeah. in like 98, 99. And that's my finding it one. really interesting too. So that's something she's been interested in for a while. Yeah, so I'm, I've been waiting. I've had a copy of God Help the Child for a little while, mm. and I've been waiting for the rest of the world to be able to read it. I know you went and bought yeah, the copy yeah. this week, um, so I'm going to be reading that. It's short, so it's going to be a one-shot. We'll be reading it before. soon, but Toni Morrison Day, always something to celebrate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and one of my favorite uh, memoirs and works of sort of literary history is out this week. Also, it's called Spinster by Kate Bollock. Um, In her mid-20s, she realizes she's probably not interested in doing the traditional meet a man, get married, have kids, figure out how to juggle your career within all of that situation. So she starts thinking about the choices that are available to her and what it might mean to choose to be single or to have relationships, but to choose not to be married or have kids. Um, Her mother died when she was younger. And so without that adult female role model to go to, Bollock goes to five women, Uh, five women writers in various points of history that she sort of uses to create her like imaginary tribe of elders. Uh, So she's got Edna St. Vincent Mm. Millay, Edith Wharton, Maeve Brennan, uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and one other one that I always forget when I talk about (laughs) this book. Um, And the text moves between thoughts about her own life, like the the very memoir-y stuff, into the history and almost biography of these women writers. And then she places them in the cultural context of the times that they were constrained by and the constraints that they pushed against to change. Um, And the whole big story is about the, um, the changing opportunities 
opportunities and options that have been available to women in terms of marriage and family and how work um, factors into that. And there's a little about being a writer, but it's mostly relatable regardless of, you know, what your career of choice is. It's funny and thoughtful. And I, I just thought the mix of memoir and literary history and feminist history was really, really great. Uh, and so that's out this week, too. And those are new books. And that's our show. Hmm. That's our show. Uh, and next week is our Mom's Dad's Grad. Mom's Dad's Grad. So get us a uh, get us a rec. Get us a request. We love to do it. Uh, Amanda's going to be on the show too. Um, and uh, we're going to let's see podcasts at bookride.com. That's where you can send the uh, requests or anything mm-hmm. else about the show. Uh, where yeah. your favorite donut place is, wherever you live. We, maybe we'll have a database, like a sort of <laughs> download database. IMDB. Yes. IDDB, International Donut Database. And you can find show notes at bookwrite.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at bookwrite. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>